Beloved, if you are visiting with us this morning for the first time or have a, or pretty new to, the, uh, to our worship services, let me offer a special welcome. And if you're joining us on the online presence as well. So week in and week out, this congregation, it's on page six of the bulletin this morning, we do something fairly peculiar. We verbally seek to distance ourselves express our disdain, or to use the words of the bulletin, we renounce three specific things. We renounce the evil powers of this world that corrupt God's good creation. We renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then we first renounce the sinful desires that would separate you from God and his people. I'm going to do a deep dive in the month of January into those three things, the world, the devil, and the flesh. What's the premise behind our doing this week in and week out? It's simply this. As a human being, you long to thrive. You innately want to flourish. You want what is good. You want a life that's full, satisfying, prosperous. And if you knew that something or someone was actively thwarting your enjoyment of your life, would you want to know about it? Of course. God created life. And God tells us how life is to be found, and he also tells us what is dangerous to human flourishing, particularly in the opening chapters of the book of beginnings, Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, we find a principle, point one on your outline, there's a principle at work in all of human life that structures, that defines what it means to thrive, to flourish as a human being. And that principle is this. For life to work, something has to die. For you to flourish as a human being, you must intentionally be putting something to death. Notice how this principle was inaugurated. Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you see what is embedded in God's command not to eat of that tree? What's embedded is for you to flourish in my paradise, you must resist disobeying that command. For life to work, something must be killed. In this case, what were Adam and Eve called to mortify? Any desire to disobey God, 
as soon as there was an inkling or an impulse in their spirits to resist God's word, they were called to resist that. Got it? For life to work, something must die. Structures all of life right from the beginning. Now in Genesis 3, this principle is tested. Satan enters paradise in the form of a serpent, and he does so specifically disparaging the word of God. Genesis 3, has God said, you surely shall not die. For life to work, what should Adam and Eve done? How does life work? Life works when you put to death, in this case what? The lie, or the liar, they should have chopped off his head. Literally, they should have. Inexplicably, Adam and Eve chose to kill the Word of God. A stunning act of arrogant treason. They killed the Word of God. What did they know of God, their creator, up until this point? All they knew, without a hint of deviation, was the perfection of loveliness, glory, truth, beauty. They knew God on the purest terms. And they refused to kill the lie, so life wasn't going to work. Paul says this in Romans 5, 2 of this act. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Two grotesque entities completely foreign to God's good creation have now entered the world, sin and death. It is like Raw sewage spewing into your kitchen or toxic waste spewing into your living room. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So, beloved, now that sin is in the world, the principle is especially enforced. What's the principle? For life to work, something must be died. Now that sin is in the world, what must be put to death? People, are you sure? Then say it loudly. For life to work, what must be put to death? Sin. To underscore the gravity, the necessity, the intensity of this, in Genesis 4, sin is personified. So I do want you to think of this thing we call sin in dwelling sin. I want you to think of it as a person, a monster that lurks within. Sin is personified in Genesis 4, 7 when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. In a sense, that statement sets up a question that the rest of the Bible helps any thoughtful, aware person answer. And what is that? How? Do I flourish as a human being putting to death this monster that is in me? What do I do? How can I find successful resistance against the power of indwelling sin? Some of you may be thinking, 
what is the big deal? Here's the big deal. You will never enter back into God's paradise with sin. He'll have none of it. That's why this is a really big deal. So do you see the point? Human life is marked as, as necessary as breathing. It is as necessary to be fighting sin. It's inescapable, beloved. So you are either killing sin or it is killing you. And the principle then is proven in Genesis 4 where Cain did not resist the sinful urge in his soul to kill Abel and he killed his brother. And so that the history of the world from then on is the history of human beings failing to deal ruthlessly with indwelling sin. Second reason why we renounce these three things. Second, no, it's a second question I want to ask. Why is it hard to kill sin? The simple answer is this. It works covertly. How many of you are boaters? You like to go out on the water, lakes, uh, the bay, the ocean. Not many boaters in this. Well, maybe this illustration is lost on this. But there are things called nautical maps. And nautical maps are big sheets you open up that portray a body of water. And there's little numbers on it showing you the depth of, of, the, uh, the, depth of the, the water. Why is that important? Because on the surface, everything looks calm and clear. But you don't know what lurks below. And that's what could hurt you, could wreck your boat, ground your boat somewhere. The same is true with sin. In our natural state... We're at peace with sin. Sin is at peace with us. Remember what Adam and Eve forfeited in the garden. They were created at peace with God to find happiness and flourishing on God's terms while what? Resisting any urge, inclination to thwart God's terms. That's how they were created. What did they exchange? They exchanged that for finding life on their own terms, which means peace with sin and correspondingly warfare with God. Sin is very stealth. It works below the surface often of our conscious experience. We're relatively unaware of its operation. So think of Proverbs 14, 12. Do I have bets? How many minutes into the sermon before Mike quotes Proverbs? <laughs> <laughs> there's a way that seems right to a man calm waters let's go but in the end it's the way of death a shark lurks below to destroy or Proverbs 30 verse 12 there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed from their filth so as you see your life ah, I'm a rosy good person the reality is God sees you filth you don't see it. This is why the writer of Hebrews encourages us to encourage one another in serious Christian fellowship because, Hebrews 3.13, don't let your heart be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. 
Left unchecked, sin will continue to work its covert, deceitful work in you, and your heart will become increasingly hardened to the wonder, the need, the beauty, the splendor of spiritual truth. A horrible place for a human being to live. Paul, in an autobiographical section in Romans 7, talks about sin deceiving me. And in that specific context, sin deceived Paul into thinking he could be right with God by keeping the rules on Paul's terms. And then he was converted and he saw how utterly ridiculous that was. Jesus had many dust-ups with the religious people of his day, particularly the leaders. And he said, you guys are blind because they did not come to grips with what lay below the surface level of their experience and consciousness, and that is the depth of their pride. Pride of position. We're really something because we're church leaders. Pride of performance. I'm a good person. God's going to let me into heaven. Pride of possessions. Jesus said they were lovers of money. He called them the blind leading the blind. Do you want proof of this in your life? Anytime you're tempted to sit in judgment on another person, despair another person, criticize another person, it's an opportunity for you to say, whoa, could that be me? So you have this vivid image Jesus supplies you for this test, and that is, he asks, why can you see the speck that in someone else's eye, all the while not noticing the log in your own? We have this uncanny ability to think more highly of ourselves than we think of other people. Third issue. Why are some, what, excuse me, what are some symptoms of being at peace with sin? I want to call it the binocular effect. Now, there's two ways to look through a binocular. You can hold them the way they were designed, and they magnify things. You can flip them, you ever done this? And everything gets tiny. Sin would have you magnify your sense of moral goodness. Inflate it way beyond its value. That's why most people think they are essentially decent folks. Proverbs says, every man's way is right in his own eyes. Remember the, 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 uh, the description of the people of God in the book of Judges? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the modern view of how people should find happiness. No one can tell you what happiness is for you. That is a lie. That's absurd. Life doesn't work that way. If everybody did that, we'd be living in chaos. That's another sermon for another day. The binocular effect. Sin, this indwelling monster, tends to magnify my sense of goodness, flip them around, and what do you think it shrinks? The holiness of God. The beauty of his character. It shrinks the real demands of the law of God. 
And the result of that, when we live this way, we essentially function as if we don't need God. I think Judy confessed that in the prayer of confession. Did anybody hear that confess? I did because I knew it was coming in the sermon. So there is a proclivity in your heart you need to come to grips with. And that is a proclivity to self-indulgent, self-sufficient, self-reliance. That's you if you have no sense of desperate conflict with indwelling sin. Do you see why indwelling sin is so pernicious? It leaves you with a sense of satisfaction without closeness to God. The reality is no human being can thrive without closeness to God. It's what you were made for. And indwelling sin leaves us with satisfaction, with self-rule. You were not created to rule yourself, beloved. Now some of you may be protesting. Mike, you don't know me. I feel at peace with God. Good. But on whose terms? Yours or God's? The truth is, people who feel close to God inexorably feel what? The demands of His holiness. You can't get close to God without a terrifying sense that you are not like Him. Sin would deceive us. Huh? I feel close to God. If you don't correspondingly have what Peter experienced on the Sea of Galilee when all the fish in the Sea of Galilee jumped into the net, what did Peter say? Depart from me. I am a sinful man. He realized in that instant he had come in contact with someone oh so different than any human person he'd ever met. Finally, how do you fight indwelling sin? Okay, so you're saying, Mike, books and books and books and books and books have written on this and you're going to do this in the next seven minutes? I'm going to try. I hope you're wondering that. How do I fight this monster? You need the death that produces life. You need the life that produces death. Just to be simplistic about it. You need the death that produces life. So who are we born naturally into this world? We are at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God. That's all of us in our natural state. Peace with sin and at war with God. That person is never going to enter the presence of God because God doesn't have people in his presence who are at war with him. He'll have none of that. There's never going to be any sin in the presence of God. So what's your biggest challenge? What's your biggest problem? If you are still at peace with sin and at war with God, this person, okay, what's our principle? For life to work, something must die. This person must what? This person's got to die if you're going to live forever. 
this person has to die. Now, all the world religions say this. The way you're right with God, keep the rules, do your best, try to live according to God's commands, and then God accepts you, or maybe he accepts you. Some religion, it's uncertain. In that scheme, nothing dies. So that doesn't work. There is one religion that promises to one and the same time kill that person and bring it to life. That's Christianity. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you can't compensate for your sin by being good. You need a death and a resurrection. So the good news is that Jesus wins a battle you can never win. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Only Jesus makes it safe to be ushered into the presence of God. See, Christianity is not another set of good, lofty morals. Christianity is vital union with another person. The person you were born into this world in, in union with Adam, who's dead in sin, hostile to God, completely unable to give God what he requires, that person can die only by faith union with Jesus. Glory. Thank you. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. I, this person, at peace with sin and at war with God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what Christians mean by being born again, a new identity. I'm no longer at peace with sin and at war with God. I, in union with Jesus Christ, am at war with sin and at peace with God through the spoils of Jesus' cross. We are peace with God through what Jesus has done. That old person, where is he? Nailed to the cross, dead, gone, buried. And the Holy Spirit has created in you a new person who is at peace with God and at war with sin. And this new person then is not just forgiven by grace, but you can fight sin by grace, by Jesus' victory. So you need the death that produces life. Does that make sense? And finally, you need the life that produces death. Remember the principle. For life to work, something has to be killed. In union with Jesus by faith, that's how you become one with Jesus. You trust him. You acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. You believe in the promise of the gospel. You become one with Jesus. A new person emerges immediately who is at peace with God and at war with sin. And God gives you his spirit by whom and only by whom we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul's words in Romans 6.11 um, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. And then he says in Romans 8, Romans 6 to 8, you've you got to master it if you're going to deal with sin. You've got to master Romans 6 to 8. I'm just giving you this little peek at it. Romans 8, 13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So we have the resurrection power of Jesus in us by the Holy Spirit to fight remaining indwelling sin. Here's the way the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What's the soul? That's this new you who by faith in Jesus are united to the resurrected Christ 
who is at peace with God and at war with sin. That's the soul. And he says, abstain from fleshly lusts. What is that? Okay, this is one of these verses where the Greek word is immensely helpful. Lusts translates the Greek word epi, E-P-I, thumia, T-H-U-M-I-A, epithumia. It's a compound word. Thumia is the standard word for desire. We all have lots of desires. Desires are fun. You're created a desiring being. And epi, that prefix, functions to intensify the word that it precedes. And epithumia is an over-desire, an inordinate desire. It's making a good thing the thing you have to have to be intact as a human being. It's a lust, a craving, and, and a sinful, inordinate desire. There's lots of things we all desire because we're human. When you make that, the thing you have to have, and you say, without God and the addition of something else, you have created, that's what I need to be happy, you've created an epithemia and over-desire. And they're in you wanting to reign. They're in you wanting to have, appealing to you, hey, come on, for the longest time, we just got along really fine. Why'd you divorce me? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm in love with Jesus and he's in love with me, that's why. So Paul says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war. That's a military term. It's present tense. And that tells you, beloved follower of Jesus, you woke up this morning, sin's at war with you. And you're at war with sin, constantly, moment by moment. And let me finish by simply asking the question, how? And I know this is going to be overly and terribly simplistic. There's lots of good books written on this. How do you do this? How do you destroy this sleeping giant that has awakened in you? Essentially, the battle is for what you find lovely. Because we are all wired to pursue what we think is desirable. The battle is for what you find lovely. Sin does a really good job painting itself in virtue's colors. It would have you desire. Remember that Hebrews reference in Hebrews 11? Moses forsake the passing pleasures of sin for the greater reproach of a following Jesus. The passing pleasures of sin. Sin's pleasurable. That's why you sin. It's delightful. And it's on its own terms. Which is delight without the glory of God. So, what is it you find lovely, sin or the Savior? And whatever you do at that moment, that is what you'll choose. So if, if you said to me, Mike, he, here's all the things you shouldn't desire or over-desire. There they are. Okay, okay, I see. Now turn away from them. Okay, okay. And I stare at a blank wall. Guess what? There's no hope for this soul. I'm going back. A blank wall versus all that pleasure, I'm, go I'm going back. The Bible doesn't call you to stare at a blank wall to forsake sin. It calls you to look at the beauty of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1, casting off the sin that so easily entangles us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. There is a power and only a power in the crucified Savior to make your heart long for truth, beauty, holiness, and godliness more than sin. It's only gazing upon the beauty of Jesus Christ, seeing him, hearing him, knowing him, looking to him.
How do you do that? You do that in fellowship with other Christians, people who say, hey, let me tell you where I'm struggling. Let me tell you how the Lord met me. Let me pray for you. Let, I want to hear your story of finding Jesus. Let's talk about what Christ is doing and how wonderful he is. You, do that. you can do it with music. There's a real power in song. That's why we sing, because there's something supernatural and mysterious about the power of songs to change us, to melt our hearts. And obviously, you do it in his word, looking at Jesus revealed in God's word, capturing the imagination of your heart. Here's the truth, beloved. Hearts are humbled into healthy spirituality. They're humbled into healthy spirituality. So in his word, when we see a crucified Savior for us and we realize he said, I'm not judging you, I'll take the judgment for your sins. You can bring your junk to me. There's no other person in the universe you can take your junk to that... Jesus says, I understand. I was tempted in the same way you were. I love you. My grace is sufficient for you. I will remake you into my own man. But Jesus is a warrior fighting for you in the midst of your sin. So don't let discovery of your sin drive you away from Jesus. Let it drive you to Jesus. Hearts are humbled into healthy spirituality, seeing the glory of Jesus. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth. Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. That's Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Your love for them, Lord Jesus. Your superbounding grace that is all sufficient to make them into a new person who is at peace with God through your spoils. And at war with sin, my brothers and sisters and I wake up every morning with this internal conflict and it is winnable. Thank you, Jesus, for the power of your spirit. Enable us together as a community, as families to access all the glories of the riches of the risen Savior in our struggle. Bless you, Jesus, that nothing in heaven and earth, not our struggle with sin, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.